Hello and welcome. My name is Amanda White. I'm editor of top1000funds.com and it's a pleasure to be hosting this conversation. I'm joined today by James Gifford, who is the founding executive director of the PRI and now heads up sustainable and impact advisory and thought leadership for Credit Suisse. I'm also joined by Fiona Reynolds, the current CEO of the PRI. And as Fiona prepares to step down from her role in about a week's time, we're going to explore the past, present and future of responsible investment and reflect on the genesis of the PRI mission, where we are today and trends and challenges for the responsible investment industry going forward. So without further ado, a warm welcome to Fiona and James. And I'll kick things off with a question for you, James. Can you take us back to the origins of the PRI and the wider responsible investment movement? How did it all begin? What did it look like? Talk us through it. Yeah, thank you, Amanda. So pre-2004, it was really an ethical investment industry. It was focused on you know, excluding or negative screening. And um, uh, I went to the UN as an intern at the end of 2003, and I'd just done a a master's uh, focusing on comparing shareholder engagement, which was only really happening in the US, shareholder activism, with the negative screening, which was the dominant uh, form of of, uh, sustainable ethical investing. And I'd come down on the side of shareholder activism. If we wanted to make a difference in listed equities, we really had to be active owners. And so when I went to the UN, I, I, um, I proposed that we develop a set of principles for responsible pension fund engagement because I felt pension funds were really the ones who were best positioned to act because their members are ordinary people. And so they really should reflect the goals and aspirations of society. And and I was hired um, to take that idea forward and that became uh, the principles for responsible investment and and I led the drafting group um, and then became the first employee and and built up the organisation over that uh, sort of 10-year period. Um, And our team also uh, was the one that coined the acronym ESG and that was really an attempt to reframe the ethical investment industry to something that was relevant for fiduciary investors. That is, ESG as a term was coined uh, to represent a bucket of issues that could be material financially or from a risk perspective to investment returns. And um, this was fundamentally different from uh, you know what had come uh, before, which was made based on morals or or values and focusing on the ESG, what is material to the future prosperity of the company, allowed this whole movement to uh, really be adopted and embraced by the fiduciary institutions like pension funds. Then they put a lot of pressure on the fund management industry to sign up. And uh, and I think that was really the the beginnings of of this um, uh, uh, the PRI and and this movement. So you mentioned that you then led the initiative for ten years since its inception and your key role in that. I think I came to visit the office back in the early days when I think it was just you and Rob Lake in that office in the East End, and things have changed a lot since then. But sort of going back to that ten year period that where you led the PRI, how how would you describe the evolution in that ten years of both the PRI as an organisation, but also 
responsible investment over that time? I mean, the PRI was very much a, a startup, and I couldn't have believed that it would have grown uh, so much, both you know, in my time and in Fiona's. It's, the growth has just been tremendous and and incredible, and um, you know, I'm very proud to have been involved. Um, in terms of the evolution, it it really went from um, nothing in the institutional space to what it is today, uh, and and certainly uh, after my ten years, it it had certainly had a, a, a sort of a real hold in uh, certainly Western Europe and North America and Australia, and uh, it's just gone even further since. So now it, it's just incredible to see um, how far this has been embedded in. Uh, I was just meeting with the hedge fund um, yesterday and their ESG analysts are just incredible. I mean, really deep analysis of sustainability, risk, return, opportunity. And I think it's it's been a, a sort of a consistent growth um, and, and, a, and a rapid growth uh, really from the launch of the PRI in 2006 to today. So, Fiona, despite all this growth and change, it's really only been in the last couple of years that we've seen sustainability really kind of become mainstream. And James describes there how mainstream it is with these, you know, hedge funds now having these deep analysis as well. But since you took over from James nine years ago, how have you seen responsible investment continue to evolve? And were there any particular sort of main turning points that you can identify in the time that you've been leading the PRI? Yeah, sure. It's interesting that James um, mentions hedge, hedge funds. I remember at the at the PRI when the staff first started talking to me about how we needed to get a hedge fund working group together. This was a long, long time ago, and we needed to start working on responsible investment and hedge funds. I was like, how do these words even go into the same sentence? And then, of course, we did start doing work in this area and things have moved. And as James said, now there's some fantastic uh, people working in that in that in that area of that of hedge funds who are completely committed to sustainability issues. So I think there are a few things in my time that have been significant turning points. One of them was the signing of the Paris Agreement. You know, the first time in 2015 where we really saw that governments were making a commitment to climate change and to a direction of travel. And I think that made a big difference for investors and business and continues then to be an area that that the investment community is behind. I also think the adoption of the SDGs was quite significant for some investors. So again, in 2015. So there's been lots of changes, uh, I think, over the last five to six years. But I do think that, yes, they've accelerated over the past two to three years. I think COVID itself has been an accelerator as well. I feel that those who were still had their jury out on sustainability issues finally had an understanding of the interconnectedness of many issues so that you weren't going to be able to have a healthy business if you didn't, you know, within a healthy economy, if you don't have a healthy people and you don't have a healthy planet, that these things all need to come together. And over the period that I've been at the PRI, I've seen much more of a rejection of the sort of Freeman-style economic thinking 
that the role of the company is just to make money for its shareholders, a move to more of a stakeholder model, that the role of the corporation uh, and what it plays in society, how it how it's, you know, its employees are an important stakeholder, so are the communities that it operates in, as are the supply chains they work in, and that it's not all just about shareholder primacy. I also think that there's been a much greater understanding since the signing of the Paris Agreement that there are planetary boundaries and we have to operate in them and we've got to invest in them. But I think in the main, it goes back to what James was talking about in the beginning about pension funds. And I do think that within the financial system, there has been an overarching power shift. And you've got asset owners who are much larger and more sophisticated now as the pension system continues to to grow in assets under management. And they have very different demands and their investment philosophy is very different. And they take a much more holistic view of members and beneficiaries and the world into which they want to retire. And it's very, very difficult today, I think, to operate as a credible fund manager if you can't show that you have got good understanding of sustainability issues and a good team. So I really think that has been the change. But I would say that it really struck me how far things have changed when I was just recently at COP26 in Glasgow. So when I first started going to COP conferences a long, long time ago, you know, responsible investment, even some, you know, investment ESG issues were sort of very much fringe events. But at this COP, finance was front and centre. The investment community was front and centre on the world stage with world leaders. And, you know, it, it just really brought it all together to me how how far we've come. In some ways in a relatively short time, but in some ways in a very long time. I sometimes hear people talking about responsible investment like it's new. It's just been a revolution that's happened in the last couple of couple of years. Some of them I see who claim on the front pages of newspapers that they've basically nearly invented the space when really it's been going for a long, long time. And there's been an incredible amount of people who have contributed to it over a very long period. Well, that's right. I mean, you two combined is oh, 18 or 19 years. So that's a lot been achieved in, you know, nearly two decades. But, you know, let's reflect on kind of where we are now and perhaps what the key challenges for the industry are going forward. James, I might ask you to comment on that and then also just talk a little bit about your work in impact um, and the impact approach to responsible investment and how you see that shaping the future role of investors and this notion of risk and return and impact. Um, but but maybe before you do that, if you can sort of outline some of the key challenges that you think the industry is going to face. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's a, a, an overlapping question because I think when the Sustainable Development Goals were launched, a lot of investors... Uh, refocused or, or added an additional uh, lens onto their investment strategies where they're not only looking at process. So most of the ESG discussions in the early years was about 
process? Do you look after your workers well? Are you bringing out the best of human capital? Are you uh, managing environmental risk appropriately, et cetera? Um, and the SDGs really sort of added the, the product and service sustainability and impact conversation to that and, and metrics and started really asking, is the company's itself, are its products and services solving a problem that needs to be solved? And I think, um, you know, one of the areas that I really focused on after I left the PRI was impact investing. And the way I see impact investing is um, focusing on sustainable products and services where, you know, we're solving a problem, but with the in added uh, element of investor additionality. And investor additionality was also something that was very important uh, during the early years of the PRI through active ownership. And principle two of the PRI is around uh, a commitment to active ownership. And that, in my view, and always has been my view, that the key impact uh, of the broader sustainable ESG space is through that active ownership, through that principle two. But there's another whole piece, which is early stage illiquid investments into technology and, and frontier markets. And while, you know, the, the efforts at, at COP26 are, are vital and, and regulatory, um, you know, momentum is, is essential if we're going to meet our climate goals, in the long arc of history, we simply need to find technologies that are cheaper and better than fossil fuels. And we need to get more capital flowing into those early stage technologies. And that's why, you know, uh, I've been so excited about what Credit Suisse is doing in the early stage uh, venture space, you know, backing scientists coming out of MIT with really amazing technologies. And, uh, you know, I've become a lot more of a, a techno optimist having uh, worked with these fund managers and these entrepreneurs, just seeing what is coming. And I think we just need more of that. So that is, I think, a real challenge is how can we get institutional capital uh, more comfortable taking early stage technology risk? And the other side of the coin is frontier markets. Institutional investors have never been comfortable with the risk associated with frontier markets, but we need more capital going into the bottom billion uh, poorest people and their communities in a commercial uh, way that grows an ethical form of capitalism in those countries. And uh, that takes you know, risk and we need to work out how to get um, development capital and really grow an ethical and sustainable form of capitalism in the poorest countries in the world. So that's where I would see the, the future in focus. Yeah, I think that they're two really good points, James. And I know the investors I speak to do grapple with that institutional grade access to, you know, venture capital technology and also frontier markets. I think that we're, there's a lot to play out there and really interesting that I'm sure the work that you're doing at Credit Suisse. So, Fiona, you know, impact and outcomes are very important, obviously, but um, alongside that is a key role that the PRI plays in supporting investors to better integrate responsible investment into their investment practices. So what more needs to be done by the PRI and, and, and what do you see that, that looking like going forward? Well, I do see that the move to uh, really thinking about sustainability outcomes is the next 
evolution of responsible investment, but it will happen at different stages at different in different countries. So this is something that the pair eyes focused on over the last couple of years. Like, how do you actually build the legal frameworks, the um, the, the the frameworks to work within and think about these? How do you get the measurements? So these are some of the things that we're doing. So we've got a big project on a legal framework for impact that we're doing with UNEPFI and Generation Foundation. And that's really about, for example, lots of pension funds, investors around the world are making net zero commitments. But do the, do the regulations in their countries really allow for this? And are they keeping up with where sustainability is moving? And that isn't the case in all countries. So we're that's that's a big project we're working around. So you you need to build all the things that investors need. You know you need the data, you need the the ways to report, you need to the ways to actually measure impact in an in an investment lens. I still think that there is a lot of um, work to do on the integration side. You know, so with some asset classes, the depth of work really isn't there. You know, if you think, and it's just you're just scratching the surface in some cases. Even if you think about the fixed income side, the debt side, there's so much more that needs to be done. And you know, James was talking about shareholder activism. Well, a lot of that still stops and starts for some investors in the listed equity space. Uh, we need to be doing much more about you know, other asset classes, whether they're in the private markets, bondholder engagement, et cetera. I think there's so much more to be done. There's some real leaders in the space, but it's not it's not always the norm. And then in the listed equity space, you know, shareholder activism is so important, but it needs to be uh, something that is you really have measurable outcomes. And I, you still see some of it being a bit tick boxy. So I think the future is really about large-scale collective action, things like Climate Action 100 Plus, where you've got 500 investors, 50 trillion in assets under management, all working on a couple of key uh, outcomes and then being able to measure those. So we've got a benchmark now to see where companies are going against our ass. So it's getting much more sophisticated. I would say, uh, as well. And then another area that I think that there needs to be a lot more work on, so just, you know, over the last couple of years, but particularly around COP, there was a lot of net zero commitments that have been made by investors. But coming back to the point James was talking about, which I just really couldn't agree more with and I talked to investors about, is you're not going to get to net zero by just investing the way that you invest and thinking that something you're going to do some engagement and everything's going to change. Business as usual and investing in you as usual isn't going to cut it. And unless we can get money into the those two things James was talking about, into solutions for the future, the technological solutions that we need, the technology the technologies that's, that's going to power the future, and that we can't, we don't move money into developing economies to help them leapfrog the technologies that we have and the fuel sources that we have. 
then we aren't going to get anywhere. And public finance alone won't do that. The private sector needs to come into this space. There is a lot of money there, and I just don't know that we're looking at innovative solutions where investors can come together to pull risk and work with the public sector to find these solutions. And that really needs to develop at scale quickly. Sounds like there's a lot more to be done, Fiona, the way you describe it. Um, But I wanted to sort of shift a little bit because we can't really talk about sustainability without talking about greenwashing. And greenwashing is certainly one of those key challenges in the industry that needs to be tackled to ensure progress going forward. So, Fiona, I'm interested in what the PRI is doing internally to tackle greenwashing and really to increase accountability, both of your signatories, but also um, the industry more broadly. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. It's a really important issue, but I find it quite a difficult issue in terms of the PRI's role. We've got a role, but we aren't the only people because we're a very big tent organisation and we want to get people started in responsible investment as well. And we're there for people to learn from each other. They don't come to the PRI necessarily in a way that says, I'm already doing everything fantastic. So therefore, uh, you know, big tick from the PRI. So from that perspective, the PRI isn't a regulator. And I don't think that we can ever be in a role where we're responsible for every stock or every investment that our signatories who now have over 140 trillion US dollars are invested in. And some people expect us to do that. I, I don't even know how we would. You know, our role has always been to provide the guidance, the frameworks, thought leadership, and then to make sure that we back it up by uh, having a robust annual reporting cycle that is transparent and that, um, you know, the reports are made public. We've introduced minimum requirements and these will ratchet up over time. We're continuing to increase the difficulty of the reporting and scoring methodology for the assessments so that it's just it's harder to get the uh, top scores. Having said that, I do think this is an area that PRI needs to do more about and find that balance between still allowing people to learn from each other and to aspire to do more and come together to do more, but not let people greenwash I believe we can do more around due diligence of people coming into the PRI and having some ongoing monitoring system for them. And that's something that I've been looking at and I'll hand over to David as the new CEO to continue to work on. We have also have a formal complaints mechanism uh, for about signatories. And I've got to say that is being used more and more Uh, uh, practically have one of the staff, you know, having to operate as a full-time complaints officer at the moment because NGOs, but more broadly, civil society beneficiaries are paying far more attention to this space and they now understand the role that the investment community plays. They understand active ownership. They understand where they do and don't want their money invested. Now, of course, not everyone Uh, But there are an increasing number and I don't think that that's going to change. 
but I can't say that I've got exactly the right answer for um, for the PRI on this because it is being a, it is a balancing act. James, what are what are your views from you know more of an external perspective now rather than from within the PRI? But how do you think this is best tackled as an industry, and what actions can investors take, or what actions do they need to take to sort of tackle greenwashing? Yeah, look, I mean, in in one sense, it's it's the sign of success. You know, everybody is jumping on the bandwagon, and you know, ESG funds. I think I read there's seventy five hundred funds that are now labelled ESG sustainable of some some description. Um, <clears throat> so, look, I think there will just be uh, ratcheting up of expectations and metrics, and the in the asset owners themselves, I think, are well placed to, uh, you know, push this in terms of they're they're the ones with the capabilities to truly assess whether funds are taken seriously uh, or not, and you know, I, I expect them to be doing so and increasingly so. Um, in terms of uh, the sort of big challenges for what what we're trying to achieve here, I think. Um, Back to those sort of mechanisms of impact, which is, you know, earlier stage private markets or, or infrastructure and those kinds of private market uh, investments, it's harder to greenwash, you know, you're either doing early stage venture capital into technologies that are solving the climate problem or, or, or you're not. And, and there may be grey areas in, in is the technology, you know, really uh, working, uh, you know, as well as it could. but it's easier, I think, in the private markets to see whether something is is genuinely impactful, um, <clears throat> because you're talking about a technology. And in active ownership, I just endorse what Fiona says. I think we've got to make sure that there are clearer um, expectations in terms of outcomes expected uh, through shareholder engagement, um, and and. Uh, you know, I think that's that's heading in the right direction. So, Fiona, you mentioned David Atkin, who's the new CEO at the PRI. You're leaving next week after achieving a great deal. If there was one thing that you wanted to hand over to David that has yet to be achieved, what do you think that would be? What would be the what would be the greatest thing that he could tackle? Oh, one thing. Well, he's just leaving to go back to it. To, he's just been in London for a few weeks and he's just leaving today. And I'm not sure I gave him one thing. I think I gave him a big, long laundry <laughs> list, um, um, Amanda. Look, I'm just going to rattle off a couple of things where I still think that we need to do more. So James was just talking also about shareholder engagement in um, uh, and in private markets. We need to do more there, but also within the whole space around shareholder activism, we need to have escalation paths. So I think there's too much like engagement that goes on. But then as that engagement's not working, what are you going to what are you doing about it? You know, what's the escalation path and what's the end? That has to happen. I also think that we've got to do far more about social issues. You know, I'm always banging on about this. Human rights, labor rights have to really rise up the investor agenda and they're not there yet. We've got to tackle inequality and the role that we play. And to me, starting with the with income tax and people avoiding tax, 
really needs to be at the heart of it. Um, there's not enough investors yet, even though I was talking about net zero. You know, if I think about the asset owner alliance that we have, there's about 53 asset owners who are in that. Well, where are the rest of them? How can you be an investor today, a large investor, and you haven't made a commitment to net zero? But I think the, and I think accountability that we mentioned is a really important issue. And as do I think the whole issue of tacking, tackling like the anti-climate, anti-lobbyists. And there is still a very big lobbyist movement who try to stop things happening. And if we think about regulations at the moment, for example, that are trying to be brought in in Europe around the taxonomy, we now see there are a whole lot of people lobbying to try to wind back the sustainability, the right sustainability elements of, of that. So we have to tackle those. But I do think the overarching thing that we have to grapple with is around the greenwashing, the rainbow washing, and finding the right balance for uh, PRI signatories to be able to be in the PRI, doing meaningful work, able to come in at an early stage, but not able to greenwash. So finding that that greenwashing balance, I think, is really a, a key thing. And working out, so one of the things David's going to do is we're going to do a new um, consultation about the mission of the purpose and purpose of the PRI as we get closer to 20 and we're moving into our third decade. And so that's going to be a big thing for him to lead forward. Well, I might finish on, on a question related to that, actually. We started with James talking about the origins of the PRI and and sort of now looking ahead, what role do you think the PRI can and should play in creating a more green just and sustainable future. I mean, you mentioned that obviously there's a consultation in that, but what what are your views in terms of the future of the PRI and what its what its role might be? Fiona, I'll start with you and then leave the last word with James. Sure. So I see that PRI has been a really key vehicle for collective action, for thought leadership and for accountability, and that has to continue. We have to drive the industry further and we need and it needs to go further faster. I do think, you know, the PRI is getting quite big now, both as a institution itself, but also within the signatory base. And I think we need to make sure it just doesn't become too big, bureaucratic and sort of slow, uh, because that can happen when you get really, when you get really big. But I really strongly feel that the PRI's best years are still ahead of it. And there's just so much more to do in this space. Yeah, I mean, I'd endorse everything Fiona says. I think uh, totally agree on the active ownership and shareholder engagement side that that really can step up uh, tremendously. And just to repeat the point I made earlier, there are two mechanisms of of real impact with investment. One is robust, you know, shareholder engagement and activism. And the other is early stage private markets and frontier markets. And, and I think that the latter is, is very difficult. And, you know, we never really succeeded in getting that impact end of the spectrum uh, happening when I was leading the PRI. Um, and I think it's so essential that we work out how to get large investors into small investments. Uh, which is in effect what we're talking about here. So venture capital, early stage, 
frontier markets and and building up an ethical capitalism both through technology and um, and and developing economies uh, in into those uh, frontier markets. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you both very much for joining me here in this conversation. And thanks also for the work you've both done over nearly two decades. I think you've left a great platform yet for yet another Australian, a third Australian, to lead, lead the, uh, the PRI. And we look forward to speaking with, with David in due course as well. But thank you both, James and Fiona, for joining me today. Thanks very much. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Fiona. Thanks, Bye. James.